Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On this week's episode, I'm excited to welcome a guest whose recent work has helped uncover the little-known feminist history of one of horror's most notable monsters. Her book, The Lady from the Black Lagoon, Hollywood Monsters and the Lost Legacy of Millicent Patrick, not only is helping audiences rediscover the forgotten history of a should-be icon, but also serves as a document of her own journey into horror. Beyond authorship, she's worked as a producer with Dark Dunes and currently serves as the co-host of her own podcast about book culture called Reading Glasses. She's a writer, producer, and a sensation. Please welcome to the show, Mallory O'Mara. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. Thank you for coming. I'm so excited to have you here. I know that, uh, you know, there's a lot to dig into. I think this book is really fascinating, and uh, I want to get into that in a second. But first, let's just talk about you and your origin story. And I think the best way to do that is to start the show the same way I start every show, with the same first question I ask every guest, and it is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why does horror appeal to you? Why do you think people are drawn to it? But why horror? Horror appeals to me because I have really bad anxiety. Uh, So when I was a kid... Uh, the first movie that really struck me was Fantasia. Okay. And I saw that, like, one of the ending sequences with Chernobog, Night on Bald Mountain, and it was the first time I was ever afraid of something that wasn't real. And as a really anxious kid, it was the most toxic, intoxicating experience I had ever had. Because I was worrying about something that wasn't in my life. Right. And it was so, and I, I continue to do that, especially this year. 2018 is just like a garbage fire of a year. And people are always like, it's everything is so dark and scary right now, especially as a woman. How do, why are you watching horror movies to make that better? I'm like, because then I'm not worrying about something that I'm, wor- I'm worrying about something that is that doesn't actually have to do with me right it takes me I feel like we get caught in like the at stage two of stress where we're just constantly worried and freaked out and like wait- waiting for the other shoe to drop but horror takes you through that entire cycle and brings you out through the other side and you feel kind of cleansed afterwards and even as like an itty bitty baby horror fan when I was a kid it felt so nice to walk out of the theater or to get up from my carpet in the living room after I was watching some VHS and I just loved it and it's such a wonderful experience and people are always like horror fans aren't they creepy horror writers and horror filmmakers aren't they the worst people I'm like no they're the best people because right. they get all their shit out yeah you know it's interesting you bring up a point that I think has been a very continuing uh, theme with a lot of creators who come on the show is this idea as horror as catharsis. And I think it's really interesting when uh, you take into account that we go to these movies and kind of put our fears of the world into the film and in a way like purge it out. Yes. And I think that like, do you think that there is a correlation then like to the rise of horror during like particularly difficult times in in history? Oh, absolutely. So I don't actually get to like stab a cat collar as I'm walking down the street, but I get to watch people on screen fighting Freddy Krueger, fighting Godzilla, fighting actual monsters, doing the things that I don't get to do, and it feels so good. People are always like, oh, it's so weird that you're like cheering at a horror movie. Isn't that kind of fucked up? But no, because that's the, you get to experience the power that you don't get to experience in real life. Right. Now, I have to ask, because you said that one of your kind of like first entry points into horror was Fantasia. Yes. And uh, I have heard many people say that Disney kind of is sort of like the first primer for a lot of 
uh, it's like a gateway drug into to, oh, totally. to horror. Do you have a favorite like Disney villain? And why do you think it is Disney specifically is, is a place that leads people to this genre? Because it doesn't seem like it should be. Disney's fucked up. Like a lot of Disney movies are super dark. Like you can play the dead parrot bingo game with ev- almost every single Disney movie. It really, I mean, it's Disney. So it has this reputation for being very fun and very kid friendly. But it's really walking kids through a lot of really, really dark themes. For me, it's still Chernabog. I love Fantasia so, so, so much. Right. And I I just think he's the coolest animated monster. He's so gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And even though he's in just this like small chunk of an anthology film, he has such a presence. And that was one of the indicators to me when I was a kid that maybe because you're supposed to be excited when he goes away you're supposed to like hear the bells of Ave Maria and like oh everything's fine now but I was like no I'm super sad bring back the demon dude (laughs) and like that was like oh I'm gonna I'm gonna be a goth kid as I grow up um you know what's interesting is how many Disney villains when you think about it uh aren't necessarily wrong. No! There's there's like this whole kind of like trajectory, narratively speaking, where it's just like... Ursula was absolutely right. Yes. Ursula's my favorite Disney villain, if not for the fact that she's designed around uh, the image of divine. Yes. Uh, but also it's sort of like, Ursula's like, your dad's kind of an impressive monarch asshole person. And you shouldn't marry someone you just met this week. Like, just FYI. Like, it seems like this is your fault. And you shouldn't marry someone who only wants you because you're gorgeous. It is fucked up that this guy fell in love with Ariel without even listening to her speak. And Ursula, like, trying to circumvent that and stop that from happening or, right. like, show her how bad it is. She, there, I, I want, like, a reboot of Little Mermaid where Ursula and teaches Ariel all the ways of, like, being a badass lady. I mean, are we making the breakthrough right now that Ursula, in her way, was kind of a social justice warrior? Oh, absolutely. I, w- I will stand for that 100%. I, uh, I am, you heard it here on Dead for Phil. We are Ursula 2020. Yeah, we are breaking open the secret history of Ursula, the sea witch. <laughs> sea witch or sea savior, you decide. <laughs> um, so tell me a little bit then about your sort of trajectory into genre. You know, you say you watch it and you're like, oh, I'm going to grow up to be a goth kid. And that's, of course, you'd say that as a bit of a joke, but you watch this Disney movie that has an element of horror that engages you and then all of a sudden you're watching the VHSs and you know like the, the horror movies but at what point in your life were you watching these films and you thought to yourself okay I am not just satisfied being a fan uh, I would like to engage this as part of my work part of what I do like what what was your trajectory into the that world it was all Millicent Patrick actually so when I was a teenager it was like when I was really going whole hog into horror stuff and I was giving myself my horror education you know we all did like trying to seek out all the classics of the genre all the universal monster movies Halloween Nightmare Night, like all all the you know important movies and after I would watch the movies I would have to look them up online because I'm a nerd and that's what nerds do right and uh I had watched Creeds from the Black Lagoon for the first time. I loved it. And I was looking it up online and I saw a picture of this woman working on the creature suit. And it was the first time I had ever, ever seen a woman doing anything on a film Mm -hmm. besides being an actress. And it was just galvanizing to me. I had never even considered the fact that I could work in horror movies because all of my heroes, Rick Baker, Tom Savini, Dick Smith, all the horror directors, they're all straight white dudes. Right. So it just sort of became like it did. It, the thought never even crossed my mind that I could have a place in it. It was like dudes, like straight dudes made horror movies. 
that's what happened. And I got to watch them. Maybe, and I didn't want to be an actress. I've never wanted to be in front of the camera. Right. So I just thought, oh, well, there's no place for me. And that just like, she, Melson Patrick opened a door for me. And that was really when I started thinking, oh, wait, I could do this. And, and I, I didn't go to call, I didn't go to film school. I wanted to be the female Steve Irwin. So I went to animal science college. I was a veterinary technician, but I did a lot of horror events on the side. Like I volunteered at like conventions and I ran a horror book club and I was just like on the like on the track to be like a professional fan. Right. And that's when I crossed paths with my current boss and he wanted me to run social media for his new company. And I was like, oh, I can do that. I'm a millennial. Like I can. I've, (laughs) I've never been to film school, but I can sure as shit run a Twitter account. Sure. And that's how I got into it. Now, and that is uh, Dark Dunes, right? Yes. I've been working there for, um, for it'll be six years into next year. So tell me a little bit about your role, because obviously he brought you in to do social media, but it has grown past that. You yes. have uh, production credits on, on the films that are being made there. So t- talk to me a little bit about that evolution, because I think that there's probably an interesting correlation to your your participation as a fan and then sort of just like even this this following of Millicent Patrick's history and your own as as the book reveals yeah it was it was really a journey of me figuring out that nobody in film knows what the fuck that they're doing and you can just kind of figure it out yeah um so a few months in uh Sultan my boss asked me to be an associate producer and just be do like assistant things right. on Kids vs Monsters which weirdly enough you went to the premiere of That's right. Super Small World uh which was our first fe- um our first feature that my boss directed and it was our third feature as a company mm-hmm. uh and I liked it so much and being a producer is really just being able to be stressed out all the time and organized and I can do that on my own. Right. So getting to do it professionally I just was good at it and it was the first time where I was like oh wait I can do this I'm actually good at this job and if I can get over the stumbling block of feeling like I don't know what I'm doing and I don't have any experience and I'm the only woman and I didn't go to film school I was like wait no I I can do this so after kids versus monsters Sultan wanted me to start developing because I'm a huge nerd and I read all the time and I see movies all the time and it was sort of it was sort of like Ryan Turek's Halloween journey where someone was like oh wait we should get people who actually are fans of this stuff to start developing it right and then that led to our the current feature that we have coming out next year which is Yama Song and I became a full producer on that project as the first one I developed and I had such a good time with it. And yeah, so follow your dreams. Just you don't you don't have to know what you're doing. It's okay. You know what? I like what you said about uh, how once you're in film, you kind of get the idea that nobody knows what they're doing. And there is an actual truth to that, because I think that uh, no matter what number of like if you've made one movie or 15 Every movie you're working on in its own way sort of feels like the first movie because every movie is sort of this nebulous thing where the factors are different, the players are different. You might have some commonalities. And so I I, I just really like the message that you're sending here because when you're on the outside, like growing up in the Midwest or like living somewhere that is not here, it seems so far away and it seems so impenetrable Mm -hmm. that it like, you know, this idea that... um, there's a specific echelon of people who do this and only they know how to do this and that like there has to be some sort of Hollywood secret to crack the code. And I, like, I also think that what you said when you were like looking at horror history that all of the people that uh, you would see were straight white men. Yeah. It's the idea that it makes it look like then, oh, only straight white guys can do this. And when yeah. you're like a queer kid living somewhere or you're a little girl watching horror movies and you're like, can I ever do that? The truth is you can because once you get here and that new movie starts, 
it's a whole new slate. Oh, yeah. It, it totally yeah. levels the playing yeah. field. And that's why it gets so excited. And that's why a lot of people grumble about new media and Snapchat and YouTube and stuff. But it, I think it's so exciting to see so many marginalized voices right. who are like, oh, wait, I never thought I could do this before. But all I need is an iPhone to make right. a movie. And it, I think it's incredible. And I think more people should do it. And I think that there's a lot of people, and I'm sure you're you know, living in L.A., you know them, that feel like this sort of Hollywood barrier needs to be maintained. And people don't like sharing industry talk with each other. And they don't want to introduce people to each other because there's this weird club mentality. Right. But there doesn't need to be. We're not competing with each other. No, it's true. And there shouldn't be competition in that way. I've always said this, and I talk about this uh, frequently uh, with friends and sometimes on the air. I don't understand this notion of uh, if if I do it, then you can't, or if you do it, I'm, I'm cut out. Because as artists, we are all unique. And we all bring something different to the table. So that, to me, means there's no reason we can't all succeed. Yeah. And I want to see everyone succeed. That's what's exciting to me about this and like the group of people that we know, like looking to see like what Chelsea Stardust does is different than what like Ryan Turk does is mm-hmm. different from what you do is different from what I do. And it's so cool to like see everyone kind of putting their stamp on this genre. And hopefully like, it, you know, now because of social media, there are people out there that are seeing that and they're like, oh, well, they did it. I can too. And you can. You certainly can. Yeah. There's this weird idea that like, and I mean, uh, the Hollywood sort of machine has sort of enforced and created this idea of like, okay, well, sorry, there's only, we can only have one female led movie this year. We can only have one gay character in this movie. We can only have one disabled character in this movie. But in my experience, when people take in media with representation in it, they're not like, well, I checked off my gay box for the year. They're like, no, I want more gay horror movies. Absolutely. I want to see more characters that are wheelchair users. I want to see more trans people in movies. They just want more of it. So we're not competing with each other. We're creating a need. Absolutely. Uh, So I want to talk a a bit. uh, Obviously, now I think is a really good time to talk about this book and this journey that you've been on, because uh, you, you know, we're sitting here actually talking about that power of that representation, like in all of this history, all of those people you mentioned, Rick Baker, Tom Savini, Dick Smith. These are all titans of makeup. Uh, in special effects. We're sitting in the studio right, right now of Joe Blasco, who did makeup of uh, for David Cronenberg. Like, these are all guys who influenced horror. And again, though, they're all guys. Yep. <laughs> and, and you saw one image of this woman working on the creature from the Black Lagoon, and that changed everything for you. Yep. And not only did it change everything for you, like, you wrote a book about it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but I want to know from that first picture to now a finished text it had to be a journey like oh such a journey <laughs> so just talk to me a little bit about like yes you saw this woman who like you you looked to and thought well she did it i can too but what's the trajectory there because i guarantee just knowing what i know about horror history you probably had to dig to get information oh it was it, i mean it started three years ago. It took me so long to do this book, and I just finished. I just passed it. Like it's at the printer right now. It's not. It's not out yet. It'll be out March fifth. Uh, but it took me a really, really long time. Uh, so when I got into the film industry, I was 23 years old, mm-hmm. and Millicent Patrick just became sort of like my talisman because I was always the only female producer. I'm still the only female producer in my company, um, and I was always the only girl. And I think a lot of people always have that. They're the gay friend. They're the black friend. They're the, the like the one girl there. There's always just like that one token person and always surrounded by other like just dudes. So right. Millicent was like my little, my security blanket reminding me that I belonged there. Right. So 
when I was 23, or when I, no, when I was 25, I decided to get a tattoo of Millicent Patrick, which I will send you a picture of if you want to set, post it for your listeners. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm looking at it now, and it's amazing. It's, yeah. it's a very good tattoo, yep. and um, the tattoo artist, I was, you know, I was getting another tattoo uh, from my tattoo artist in New York, Matt Buck, and he was like, we were talking about Creature from the Black Lagoon, and I was telling him about Millicent Patrick, and he was like, oh, wow, I really want to tattoo her on you. She looks amazing. And um, so I got the tattoo, and I was talking about it um, and, like at parties weeks later, and I, as I was telling the story about her, no one, like, I didn't know what happened to her. Nobody knew who she was, and I was talking to a literary agent friend of mine, and he's like, you should write that book, and it just never occurred to me to, that I could be the one to tell her story right i don't i had never written a book before i've never investigated anybody i didn't know how to do this but i thought well millicent showed me how to that i belong in the film industry maybe i can do this too and i just sort of figured it out Mm -hmm. like i'd be like privately invested her life investigated her life for a year and it took me forever and there was so many mistakes made because uh, I was just bu- sort of bumbling around and also looking at a lot of source materials that people thought didn't have anything in it, but it was old white dudes who were like, I mean, I had so many men tell me, oh, that she didn't do anything. She must have just been somebody's girlfriend. So she had been like the, the evidence of her life had been there for 60 years. But because she was a woman, she would was overlooked. So people thought that they didn't know what happened to her. Right. So it wasn't it ended up not being as hard as I thought it was going to be. I just had to look at things that so many people had overlooked. And of course, one of the things uh, we really want to encourage listeners to do is read the book and go on the journey. So we don't want to make any major spoilers, but like it is my understanding that Millicent Patrick pretty much designed the the creature from the Black Lagoon as we know it to appear today. Yes. But because of how the kind of harsh politics of Hollywood uh, were at the time, she didn't get the credit for actually creating those uh, that that creature effect. Yes. And um, so if you you could just tell us a little bit about that, like what was their active erasure at the time? Yeah. So, and this isn't a spoiler because this, I mean, there's only a little bit of information about her life. And also, uh, heads up for listeners, if you look on her Wikipedia page, it is full of misinformation. There's a lot of stuff on there that is not true. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what happened to her is she designed the creature and she had been working at the Universal Monster Shop working on other movies. Uh, The creature was not the only monster she designed, um, but she... uh, had designed the creature and Universal was like, oh, look at this amazing, beautiful woman. We'll send her on a press tour to promote it. And the guy who ran the Universal Monster Shop, this guy named Bud Westmore, was so jealous of her getting recognition, even though she was on the tour saying that she didn't design it. She was giving the credit to him. Because at the time, there was only one person who would get credit in a movie's, uh, like, on the screen. It was Bud Westmore for makeup, even though there was an entire team involved in creating that suit. He was the only one getting credit for it. So it was just sort of unprecedented at the time that someone would go out and say anything different. And so she was out talking about him, giving all the credit to him, but he was so jealous that she was the one doing press for it that he fired her. And like blacklisted her she never worked behind the scenes ever again and no one knew what happened to her so not only did she not get credit but she lost her job she lost her entire career which is wild to there i mean to think that she created this thing that is now part of our pop culture like consciousness that is the creature from the black lagoon even if you're not a horror person you know what it looks like yes and wow, that's you know. That's it's one, he is one of the most iconic 
monsters ever. Mm-hmm. You know, he's one of the big universal pantheon. If you're a universal monster nerd, you know, there's the bride, Frankenstein, Dracula, Visible right. Man, like the mummy, Wolfman, like they're all you know, the Pantheon and Creature from the Black Lagoon was the last one in that lineup and the only one designed by a woman. There still has not been, I mean, there are many amazing female special effects artists now, V. Neal, Erin McCache, there's all kinds of incredible women working in the field, but no one still has been allowed to design a big, famous, iconic monster. You know, and what I do think is like particularly poetic about this case is that it is the creature from the Black Lagoon of all the characters. And I'm reminded recently for someone's birthday, I was out in Burbank and I stopped by the Mystic Museum and I bought this packet of uh, Monster Squad stickers for a friend. And it had all of the classic monsters. And uh, the person uh, at the checkout counter was like, well, who's your favorite of the monsters? And I said, oh, it's Dracula. And she said, oh, you went straight for the evil one. And I was like, well, yeah, I said, but I think it's also a loaded question. I said, yeah. and, the, and, and the reason is this. I said, Dracula is actually a monster to me. Like, because, like he is actively evil. Like, that yeah. makes him a monster. Whereas some of these characters are not actually monsters. No. They're misunderstood. Yes. And I think particularly the creature from the Black Lagoon gets labeled as a monster when, in fact, he's very sympathetic a creature. Oh, yeah. Because they're going into his ecosystem. They're treating him like this terrible thing, but they're the ones taking everything away. Yes. And I think how analogous to the journey of of women working in Hollywood at the time, to gay people working in Hollywood at the time, to people of color, anybody who is not like part of the mainstream, that story, this the idea of otherness, something yes. we talk about on the show all the time, how uh, we, we relate to those kind of characters because we have in some ways been treated like those kind of characters. Oh, 100%. And that's, I mean, the, the amazing thing about Creature from the Black Lagoon is the the white dudes are the villains. Yes. And that, I mean, is really explored and taken to a further extent in Guillermo del Toro's Shape of Water, which is basically Creature from the Black Lagoon fan fiction that I am 100% here for right. every day of the week. Uh, but the creature isn't the bad guy. Like you said, they go into his lagoon. He's just like hanging out there. And there's so many scenes. It's the scene where he, uh, the creature is swimming underneath Julie Adams. That's how I felt when I was in high school every day. Right. Like looking at these like beautiful people that I didn't feel like I could approach at all and feeling like a monster mm-hmm. and just feeling completely ostracized. And that's why, part of why I think Creature has been so enduring and why he became so iconic is that he's so empathetic. Absolutely. I think, too, what's interesting uh, about this this story is you talk about the empowerment you found in discovering Millicent and you wrote this book about her journey and the things that happened to her and sort of this oppressive situation in the industry and I know based on conversation with you a lot of uh, what is put into this book also is your own journey yes and what I'm interested in uh, is as well as as Millicent's history is sort of how how many decades later? We're talking six, sixty years later. Uh, as much as things have changed, <laughs> much has stayed the same. Yes. And one of the things you shared with me the other day when we were talking uh, about doing this this interview was how you're writing this history about the erasure of this woman's participation in a pivotal moment in monster movie history, and there has still been internet feedback from guys who just are not having it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I already, I've been getting hate mail about this book for a really long time. And one of the reasons why I wanted to write a little bit about my journey is 
it's so easy to look back and like, oh, it's so sad that this thing happened to Millicent Patrick 60 years ago. Right. But that stuff is still happening right now. Right. In this day to so many people and like just any kind of marginalized voice are being actively repressed by people. So I was talking to a friend of mine who is a normal person and year, like years ago when I was still working on like still researching, I hadn't even started writing it. And she was like, okay, well, why are you writing this book? And I'm telling her all about Melissa Patrick. She's like, but I don't like monster movies. Why would I read it? And I was like, oh, well, all the stuff that happened to Melissa Patrick is still happening now to right. me. And she was like, that's what you need to write about. You need to include it because it's so easy to just write all this stuff off. But I, I wanted people to be left after they read this book with a sense of like, what can we do about this? Right. What like how, how can we fix this? How can I one of the first steps is being aware of it. Mm-hmm. So I include a bunch of stories of like really shitty things that happened to me from male directors, male actors, male producers, because, it you know, it happens all the time. Right. And it's so... That's really one of the biggest obstacles to to the film industry. I know so many people who stopped because they couldn't take it anymore. Right. So in sharing this story and your own struggles uh, and uh, by by kind of highlighting these parallel journeys at at different decades, um, you helped the world learn about. Millicent Patrick. And when this book comes out, I think a lot of people are going to have their eyes open. But by also sharing your journey, uh, I think that, of course, you had to look within to write and, and, and make this happen. So while you're helping people learn about her, here's one of those tough interview questions. Uh, what did you learn about you while writing this book? One of the things that I really had to struggle with and had to come to face is how much misogyny I had internalized as a female horror fan. Mm-hmm. And it's so when I was a teenager, I was one of like, I'm not like other girls kind of girl. And it, I had to really reckon with the damage that I had done to myself and how like, I mean, I didn't really start making female friends until I was in my 20s because I just was like, oh, I, I want to be one of the guys. And if I can just like overlook all this bullshit that's in the genre, then I can be accepted and I can belong and I can be cool. And it is so awful and so toxic. And after a while, I was I had to reconcile with the fact that it wasn't just the patriarchy and misogyny and all this outside stuff that was doing this stuff. I was doing it to myself because when I was a teenager I, the only part of Millicent Patrick that I didn't like was how glamorous she was. Millicent was never without lipstick and heels. Right. And I was like, oh, girly shit. So, so lame. So weak. Right. And I still have to struggle with that today. And it took me a really long time to be, realize that I can be just as badass in a pair of sparkling rhinestone heels as like steel toe combat boots. Right. And take it uh, from this guy. I think that if you're wearing heels all the time, you are tougher than most people because like I (laughs) I challenge any man who's just like uh, girly shit. I'm like, you walk a fucking mile in high heels. (laughs) Those things are no joke. Yeah. And I think that's something um, I mean, we we, if you are gay, if you are trans, if you are just like any any type of marginalization, we have to really, really look at ourselves and make sure we're not internalizing it. And it's so insidious and it is so difficult to push it out and like because some of the voices that are telling you that stuff in your head Mm -hmm. that you're wrong that you don't belong that you're doing something that being too much of yourself is bad in some way or weak in some way that's not your own voice and it's really hard to reconcile with that and recognize it and push it out and be like no 
I am going to be me. This is all wrong. And it really, really helps me. So when I, you know, even still, sometimes when I go to interviews, you know, I want to uh, change the way that I talk or change the way that I dress when I don't look as girly. And I'm like, no. I'm not fooling anybody. I'm not like no one's going to be like, oh, look at that. I'm like walking into a meeting with a fake mustache on like I am a woman and that's great and amazing. And I can just embrace that. And there's no part of that that is weak. Right. And it's interesting to to bring it back to the earlier discussion about how horror helps us with that. Because I think that it's like when you were talking about uh, the outside world's perspective that, oh, this is dark material, it's air quotes, sick material or whatever. But I think that when we look at kind of the journey of other and um, the the overcoming of darkness, that's what these movies are really about. Like yeah. in a way, like, you know, it's it's sort of about embracing whatever weirdness exists in the world, because the truth is we're all weird. We're just, uh, some people are a little more commonly weird than others. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what I love about this community is that we have these moments where we come back around and like, yeah, it's okay. It's okay. Oh yeah. And we were also talking about how that's, we are the most important parts of horror. Yeah. Because horror happens to us. Yes. You know, a straight white guy can walk out of a theater and just go to bed we still have to think about that stuff because it might still happen to us. Yeah, I mean, the idea to, like, and it's something that's not easily communicated, like night fear when you're walking anywhere by yourself at night. Yes. Like, I don't know, uh, like, anybody, any straight white male friend of mine ever even thinks about walking through, like, the parking structure at the mall. Like, as yes. if, yeah. As it's if, mind-blowing to me. Yeah. Like, we plan our entire lives out of being, uh, around being safe and getting from one safe space to another safe space. I can't even imagine not having to do that. Blows my mind. <laughs> Ugh, it's insane. Um, so, yes, this book is coming out in March. Yes, March 5th. March 5th. Uh, I am so excited to check it out. And I love the, uh, you know, all of these things that we are getting to learn about this. This, as I said at the top of the show, should be icon. But I think what's really even cooler is the things that you are sharing about you. Because I think that what happens when these kind of stories are told is exactly you know what the mission statement of a show like Dead for Filth is. It's like we want to tell people out there who are listening, you are as good as your icons. Yes. You are as powerful as your icons and you can make it happen. There's no dream too big. No, not at all. And uh, I'm just so excited that you not only are preserving the history of this person whose history needs to be preserved, but I think it's important that you preserve your own. So. Oh, thank you. Yeah, there was a lot of I had to put a lot of st- bad things about Millicent Patrick in this book. The, mm-hmm. Mil- I won't spoil it, but Millicent made some really terrible relationship decisions that harmed some people. And originally I was really struggling because I was like, man, I'm already swimming upstream trying to get people to understand and feel for and and look at this woman as the icon she is. Right. How am I going to do it when I found out all this bad stuff about her? But it made me feel closer to her. I, too, make terrible romantic decisions. (laughs) How relatable is that? And it made me see that we can all get there. You know, there's not she isn't some superhuman person. She was just a woman who was really fucking good at what she did. And that's all you have to do is just be you and be good at it. 
Yeah, I think there's this weird thing, too, especially in the era of social media, that we always have to present perfection always. But also, I think the thing about social media is you realize very quickly that it's impossible. Yes. So, you know, live with flaws. Oh, yeah. Because you're going to you're going to have them. So well, they make you you. And that right. was part of who Millicent Patrick was. And it was such an important part of her character, you know, so that made me look at myself and be like, oh, wait. I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to uh, uh, like uh, like try to get to this perfect ideal where I have no flaws and I don't do anything wrong and I'm wearing heels all the time, which I can't do anyway. You know, it's just it's okay. Uh so taking this this journey of writing a book and kind of transitioning to another part of your life. Books are obviously very important to you. Yes. <laughs> and you uh, you co-host a show called Reading Glasses with Brea Grant. Tell me about that and tell me about this just kind of investment in the world of book culture. Oh, yeah. I So I am a huge reader and I, I read so many books. It's just a big, big part of my life. And my friend Brea Grant, she also is a big reader. And one day we were having lunch with a friend of ours and we were sort of talking about what book lights are best to not wake up your partner when you're reading in bed and they're Mm. trying to sleep. And our friend Jason was like, you guys should make a podcast about this because I I read a lot of books, but when you read a lot of books, you realize that you'll never read all of them. I read like a a 1% of the books that come out. So, and there's a lot of book podcasts out there, but they all review books. Right. And it feels a little bit inaccessible because if you haven't read that book, you don't really care about listening to the show. Right. So Brie and I wanted to create a show about reader culture. That doesn't matter what you read, how you read it. If you read, Bria reads mostly like dystopian YA and science fiction, and I read a lot of horror and like weird fiction. And I read physical books. She reads e like she's an e reader, and we realized that. But there's still so much to talk about. Like, what's the best library app to use? Best book light. Also, like, how do you get a book back from somebody who borrowed it? What's the etiquette for that stuff? And there's so much reader life that people don't talk about enough and that's we we do interviews with authors and people in the industry and it's really from a reader perspective so it doesn't matter like you can read you can read one book a year it still isn't a reading glasses and t- be able to take something away from it uh i like what you said that you're never going to read all the books you want so uh daniel handler who is known to uh, a younger audience as lemony snicket has a quote uh where he said i'm probably going to die next to a, a, a stack of books that i was intending to read hard same and i feel like that it's like very much uh, where if you love books, it's true. Like I have a stack of books next to my bed right now that I'm I, I like have this like internal conversation always where I'm like, I need to read these. And you can't, Michael, you cannot buy another book until you read at least one of these. And then I'll be out and I'm like, but I want this one. Yep. And then I buy it. Yep. So uh, I don't know. I like having books around. Oh, I love having them. And also I feel like social media has sort of tied into like, you know, there's a booktubers are a huge thing. Bookstagram right. is a big thing. And I, we hear from a lot of listeners that are like, oh, I see so many people on social media. They read so many books. I'll never read all those books. I'm never going to read all the books that I want to read. But it's okay. Right. You're still a reader if you read one book a year. And we try we try to get rid of any book guilt and try to be really, really book positive and reader positive on reading glasses. Well, one of the things I like to do when I have guests on, especially when they have a particular area of interest, usually, as longtime listeners know, I will ask at some point, like, what have you seen recently that inspires you? But because you are so invested in the world of books and you love horror books, and so does my audience, do you have any horror books that you've read recently that you really are like, this is where it's at? Like, I have to recommend that one. Yeah, there's a book that my favorite horror 
book of the year. It's um, The Cabin at the End of the World by Paul Tremblay. And it will fuck you up. <laughs> it is so good. I, Paul Tremblay is one of my favorite horror authors. Uh, but this book, I think, is just the best book of the year. I read it in two sittings. I could not put it down. It's like apocalypse story meets home invasion story. Mm-hmm. And it really is it, It's so reflective of a lot of things happening in 2018. And uh, it's a gay story. It features two um two men and their adopted Chinese daughter and like dealing with this home invasion and like their love sort of keeping everything together. And it was just, I was like, I want like a thousand other books like this. It's so good. And so power. It's like trigger warning. It is a, there's a lot of really heavy themes in it. Uh, some child death. It's very scary, but it is incredible. Definitely my horror pick for the year. I've heard a lot of good things about it. I haven't read it yet, but oh, maybe sorry. that will be my Christmas break read. So. Oh, it's so good. And like get yourself like make sure you have like a bunch of kittens and like a drink and like a bunch of fluffy things to make you feel better. But it is so good. Well, speaking of uh, writing and reading and other uh, literary endeavors, please tell me about the investigators of Arkham Horror. Oh, my God. <laughs> you were the only interviewer to ever ask me about that book. Uh, that was my first published book. Uh, so I got approached by Fantasy Flight Games. Okay. To the, so they made this art book. If you've ever played Arkham Horror, which is a really, really fun uh, role-playing game, Um and they wanted to do all these short stories based off of all their characters. And I have played Arkham Horror a bunch. I really like the game. Uh, so I got to pick eight characters and write short stories for them in the book. And if you find me on Twitter and you can guess one of the stories that I wrote, I will send you a prize. Oh, I love that. We, lo- <laughs> we love a contest here. Now, I want to uh, clarify just for my own edification. This is Arkham, but like HP Lovecraft, not like Arkham, <clears throat> like Batman prison. Yes. Okay. This is Lovecraft stuff, which is very, very problematic. And for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, one thing I do think is interesting, sort of in a in a weird tie around is H.P. Uh, Lovecraft frequently, of course, wrote about aquatic creatures. Yes. And uh, there's probably like a through line to the creation of the creature of the Black Lagoon from something like Shadow over Innsmouth. Yes. Lovecraft was really afraid of the ocean. I mean, I get it. Like, yeah, I'm like not a big fan of swimming in water that I can't see the bottom. Lovecraft was afraid of the ocean, space, vaginas, and people of color. Those are the things that terrified him more than anything else in the world. And he was so freaked out. of. And it's so interesting that we're talking about this because H.P. Lovecraft was so afraid of otherness in any form. He was so into being like the pure English lad that all of his stories contain so much fear of other people. It's crazy. So I made uh, two low-budget horror movies in Providence, and when that's where I'm from. Oh, I didn't know. I, got... I am. A, I love Providence, Rhode Island. It's my favorite city in the world. And uh, one of the last times I was there, I uh, did this killer nun movie, and uh, I was like, I want to go and see where Lovecraft was buried. Mm-hmm. And so they took me to that cemetery where he his grave is, and um, there's a security guard like. On, oh yeah. Yeah. Apparently, like, are people trying to steal his body? I don't know. Um, but they had a security guard like set up uh watching over the grave of lovecraft you couldn't take any pictures which is fine um it's not, not that nice of a headstone no so it's and not, not, that not everything needs to be an instagram moment anyway uh but uh, while we were there what i thought was really great was a security guard was like yeah people will come and like leave their like metal band tapes and things he's like stuff this guy would have hated yeah like oh, he's lovecraft like, hated almost everything except like bad food and white people 
Uh, I mean, yeah, he seems notoriously not like a fun person at all. Although there's this book and I'm going to get chastised by my listeners because I don't remember the name of it uh, about how there was uh, a man who was like in love with H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, the Night Ocean by Paul Lafargue. Yes. Yes. It's a really f- um, reimagining of H.P. Lovecraft's life as if he was gay. And it's v- a very fun book. Do you know if there's any precedent for that? Like, was he like potentially like puritanically closeted or no? Like, uh, there's I- a lot of speculation about right. it. Uh, if anything, I would guess that Lovecraft was very asexual. He just was really disgusted by human bodies. He was married for a while to a Jewish woman. Um, Sonia Green, I think was her name. Um but so it's just like that sort of wild speculation. I don't think we'll ever really know. He was just a really deeply disturbed dude. I know. It's so interesting to me, too, that he looked up to Edgar Allan Poe because Poe is like the complete like opposite of like out there getting drunk every night, causing trouble. Oh, yeah. Well, H.P. Yeah. Love, if H.P. Lovecraft lived today, he would be one of those like crazy right wing YouTubers that like is really, <laughs> really problematic and but doesn't understand how hypocritical he is. Right. Something that, and that's why I think sometimes the legacy of certain things is best left in the past. We can all talk about Cthulhu kind of like with a happy smile without acknowledging that the person who created him might is probably a bigger monster. <laughs> well, that's, I think it's really exciting that there's so many people who are retelling Lovecraft stories. Like uh, there's a great author, Victor Laval, mm-hmm. who wrote a book called The Ballad of Black Tom, which is dedicated to Lovecraft, but it's a reimagining of the horror at Red Hook, which is a wicked racist story but from the point of view of a black person and it's incredible and you're like oh wait this is so much better yeah and there was this really really great uh i saw it on the queer film festival circuit a number of years ago uh reimagining it technically was uh shadow over insmith but they uh called it cthulhu the name of the movie was cthulhu but it was more about like the cult was that uh with that blonde lady tori spelling yeah tori spelling yes but there's like some really uh like this man comes home after he uh, he's gay and he left because his family didn't accept him. Uh, but then his his parent dies and he has to come and like kind of deal with that, that that state of affairs and discovers that everyone in town is like still like richly puritanical to mm-hmm. this re- this old religion. Uh, and it felt like a really kind of interesting uh, subversion of Lovecraft because that it follows the the tenets of the story. But here's with a character that he would have never oh, yeah. approved of. And yet they're showing like this character is literally the kind of person mm-hmm. who would, you know, s- be suffering most in yes. this world that you created. So yes. I thought I, I, I like that subversion when someone's gone long enough that we can take what they, they gave us and be like, but also. Oh, yeah. No, I am so here for people taking Lovecraft stories and just turning them around and telling them in a totally different way with people that he would have hated. Because, I mean, there's no arguing that he was a very important horror writer in the way that his creations were so iconic. And he really changed. He was one of the first authors to write non-religious horror. Up until that point, people were dealing with ghosts and there was a lot of like Christian guilt about things and fear right. of the dead and the afterlife. Lovecraft wrote stories, horror things that could scare atheist and that was he was really one of the first people to do that but he was also a giant piece of shit (laughs) so it's so exciting to me that people are taking that legacy and just like expanding it and exploding it i i do though right in this moment i'm like really like i want to make an anthology film called things that scare atheists because i like i love just the idea of like what can we do yeah (laughs) Oh, well, he, I mean, the idea that we are just this like black tiny speck on the face of the universe that n- nobody cares about us and we will get wiped away by some gigantic alien race by at some point. Like, that's scary to that, people. That's scary to me. Like, yeah. so I'm, I'm, I'm with it. Uh, 
I love I love that we went down the path of the uh, of the problematic Lovecraft, which we've never <laughs> talked about in like nearly sixty episodes of this show. Oh, if so you ever want me to come back and do a whole episode on <laughs> pro- problematic Lovecraft, I am here for you. Um, so you mentioned this briefly, but tell me a little bit about Yamasong, this movie that you're the producer on that's coming out uh, next year. Yes, it is my. It's coming out next spring. It is my baby. It is like Dark Crystal meets Princess Mononoke. Okay, and it's a live action puppetry film. It's going to be the first live action puppet feature since Team America. And uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a very sci- like at the intersection of sci-fi and fantasy. We have a great voice cast: Nathan Fillion, George Takei, Abigail Breslin, um, and it's just a lot of fun. It's, it's the artistry of the puppets is so beautiful. It's um, I, I don't know how nerdy I can get on you get puppets. as nerdy as you want. Yeah. So there's an American form of bunraku Japanese puppetry. Have you ever seen those videos on YouTube of like? you know people like a bunch of people dressed all in black and they're like holding a cat or something and making it dance and they're up against the black background so it looks like the cat's dancing by itself yeah, yeah. that's bunraku so they do an american form of it but our puppeteers instead of being in all black we have them in green suits so we can digitally remove them so it's all rod puppetry on like a table oh interesting yeah it's super fun um I'm really excited about it. I'm really proud of it. Um, we had a really, we had a great crew. We had a great cast. It is, um, it's my baby. It's the first one that I really produced and developed. And as you and I both know, making any movie is difficult. Yes. <laughs> is making a movie with puppets exponentially more difficult? It, it, it isn't. You just swap it out for different difficulties like you can take your cast and throw them in a box at the end of the day it's very handy like we have this great voice cast but we recorded with them we did all their stuff adr so we don't we like didn't have to like they weren't on set every day right and everything was very small like the puppets are all one to two feet in height so but you know as you can imagine there are a lot of problems with shooting at that small of a scale trying to get all the coverage that you need when everyone is tiny and drinking out of cups the size of a thimble um it's just different types of problems and challenges but there were a lot of cool rewards and there was a lot of it was a lot of fun at the end of the day you're still working with puppets (laughs) and everybody loves puppets yes uh so yeah i can't wait i can't wait to see that that sounds so fun uh, what I like to do anytime I have a guest on around a major holiday, uh, and you, uh, I believe this in a way is our Christmas special hey. so, or holiday special. We are we are non-denominational here at Dead for Filth. But do you have any holiday traditions for this time of year? Uh, yes, I have a book mystery every year. Uh, I make a pile of books in the shape of a Christmas tree, and I put LED lights around it and some sort of topper, and it's just my book my book tree. And try to keep my cats away from it. I love that. Uh, what uh, What's your topper this year? Uh, so my partner has this like book light, and it looks like an open book, but it's a light. Mm-hmm. And so we when we open it and put it on top of the tree. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's really fun. Uh, and because we're a horror show, and I one of my favorite subgenres of horror is holiday horror. Do you have any holiday horror movies that are particularly near and dear to you? Oh, it's got to be Gremlins, or although I guess maybe American Psycho. Is American Psycho set during Christmas? Yeah, I guess it is. Yeah, yeah. There's that like there's that scene at the holiday party where right. they put the like, antlers on Christian Bale. Yeah, I think American Psycho. And you, know, I, I don't get to talk about American Psycho enough, but as far as a film adaptation, I think that movie is uh, nigh flawless for reasons that it wasn't made by a white man. Yes, because it's like. Written again, Guinevere Turner, who wrote the script, lesbian, directed by Mary Heron. Only a lesbian and a woman could have directed that movie and and put like the the spotlight of like the misogyny that exists that I think that like someone else would have not even 
got. A hundred percent, especially since uh, Brett Easton Ellis is a garbage man who like complained <laughs> about how bad Mary, like how bad, like he literally thinks that scientifically women cannot be good movie directors because they're, they are made differently. Mary Heron is one of the most flawless filmmakers. Oh, yeah. I, I love her. I, I, did you see Moth Diaries? Her, her No. Mary Heron directed this movie called Moth Diaries that is uh, a, kind of a pseudo-lesbian vampire story. That, and, that, and sign me up now. Yeah, and it, it runs parallel to like the Carmilla story. Like wow. they're reading Carmilla while this is kind of like going on. And it's really cool. And honestly, it's one of those queer horror movies that I'm always trying to point people towards. Oh, I'm going to watch that like this weekend. Because I don't think for whatever reason it just got the attention it deserved. Like, but I think as with a lot of things, like it just didn't come out at the right moment. Yeah. But it's like one that I think is ripe for rediscovery. And uh, it's really good. And she and Gwen Turner uh, just teamed up again uh, to do a Charles Manson movie. Um, Mary Heron directed, Gwen Turner written, I believe Matt Smith, a.k.a. Uh, Dr. Eleven, is uh, is Chucky. <laughs> oh, I am in for this. I am um, so in for this. I I did not expect today's episode to turn into a Mary Heron fan jamboree. But Everyone's day should be a Mary Heron j- fan jamboree. <laughs> we don't deserve her. No, we really don't. She's great. I also have, like, I think I like the choice of American Psycho as a Christmas movie because it's a non-traditional choice. Yeah. Well, everyone, everyone goes for, uh, you know, Gremlins, um, Die Hard, like, right. you know, just there's a bunch, like, there's a bunch of pseudo or, you know, like christmas horror movies like black christmas and stuff but yeah america i just love american psycho so much and there's there's like that scene at the christmas party is just extra creepy because it's christmas yeah well i think christmas inherently is creepy like no one ever talks about it but there's just something like you know this these weird eerie lights in a time of year where everything's dead yeah uh it's sort of like we're we're gonna put um twinkle lights to cover up the fact that the world outside is frozen yeah and there's i mean i think everything about Jesus is pretty creepy. So I, I grew up completely without religion. I've never been to church. I am going straight to hell. I just don't know anything about Christianity. So I love when people explain like Christmas traditions or like like Christian Christmas stuff to me because I'm like, wait, what? Well, most of it's rooted in uh, pagan things anyway. Yes. And that's the crazy yeah. part to me is like, it's just like Christianity putting a mustache on a lot of pagan traditions be like it's christmas now we're gonna celebrate this baby yeah i just did a whole episode of my other show shout out history of fright you can watch it weekly uh it, where i talked about the history of elves and how elves come from like this neo-pagan uh tradition elves of, are like, terrifying yeah, where like they would eat your children if you didn't leave them gifts and that's also where stockings come from so it's terrifying like, there's nothing christian about that it was no just, yeah. we were just me and my partner were just talking about the yule lads which is an icelandic christmas tradition where it's like 13 and you can actually see it in the new sabrina the teenage witch Christmas special uh there are like 13 Icelandic elves that each do like this one Icelandic elf that's entire job is to steal sausages from people I mean not a bad gig right like (laughs) (laughs) that's like his jam and there's one guy who like closes the doors that you open they're all like slightly annoying things that they do but it's creepy they all kind of just sound like they're overly type a oh they're gonna steal those sausages i need to get those christmas sausages <laughs> oh my god i love it this is exactly the kind of holiday content that i needed um, <laughs> i will send you something about the yuletide sausage stealer and you will be you and you can there's an anthology movie you can make 13 films about each of the yule lads well i was gonna say i think i have seen the yuletide sausage stealer but then <laughs> then tumblr shut down so. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, R.I.P. <laughs> R.I.P. Uh, so outside of holidays, uh, what horror movies have you seen recently that you really liked? Did you have a favorite this year? Uh, oh my God, I just finally got to see Sorry to Bother You. Oh yeah. That's... Which I, I think counts as a horror movie. I think it's a Bonnie horror movie. Yeah, I'll take that. That's a, uh, You know, it's a movie no one else on the show has mentioned, so I'm glad that you brought it up because this was uniquely fascinating film. Oh, it's absolutely fantastic. I love weird shit. All that's all you have to do to get me to read or watch anything is like, oh, it's wicked weird. And I'm like, I'm there for it. And people kept telling me they're like, sorry to bother you as a horror movie, but I don't want to tell you why. And I don't want to tell your listeners why, because I don't want to spoil it for them. Because when it happens, you're the entire time you're just saying what the fuck over and over again, but with a look of sheer delight. Right. The movie is incredibly directed. Everyone is amazing in it. Tessa Thompson is so good. And it just it starts weird and gets weirder and gets to the point where it's this weird, like nihilist capital capitalist parody body horror movie and you're like oh my god i can't believe i'm actually watching this well you know i love that people are just making bold movies now oh yeah it's sort of like you know we're in a really bad minute moment uh culturally and politically but like the art is slapping back at least yeah i mean i am so happy that i get to live in a world where the greasy strangler exists <laughs> like i just love weird shit and i love that not only is it getting are people like excited about this stuff but like people are making it and making right. it good like i just I, I wish i was there in like some of the development meetings for sorry to bother you where if you've seen it you will get what i'm saying where like this just that third act someone was like yeah we're gonna do this you're gonna see a bunch of weird dicks you're gonna just see that and they were like, okay, we're going to shoot it. And I'm so like, I'm so here for it. Oh, man. That, you know, talk about sentiments to, to head off into the <laughs> night on. Uh, <laughs> speaking of Tumblr. Uh, so before we head off into the night, um, is there anything that you're working on ahead that like beyond the book or, you know, the movie? Is there anything that you've got coming that you can tell us about? Or uh, do you just want to focus on... No, I have. Uh, I'm actually working on uh, three new books right now because I'm a masochist um, and I can't tell people what they are, but they're one of them is very much in the same vein of Lady from the Black Lagoon. One mm -hmm. of them is YA, but they're all nonfiction. I, I want to be like the Mary Roach of weird shit. And Mary Roach is my favorite nonfiction author, but she does these really, really deep dives into th into taboo subjects. And I want to go even weirder. And like that's I just love finding new like stories that have been covered for so long or talking about things that from a different lens and there's so many things in the world that we don't see because we all look at them through this male gaze right and i want to smash that i love that mission statement and honestly i can't wait to see what you do next thank you uh Mallory, where can people find you? Uh, I am on Twitter way too much at Mallory O'Mara and on Instagram. Or you can just, if you want to find out about the book, just go to MalloryO'Mara.com. Uh, I'm going on book tour. Uh, so you can find me many places in the country. And yeah, if you want to see lots of cute pictures of my cats and what I'm reading, you can find me on the internet. And please keep an eye out for her book coming out March 5th. Go see her on her book tour. Tell her that we sent you. Yay. And uh, thank you so much for coming today. Thank you for having me. I'm Michael Verratti. This has been Dead for Filth. Yours always in glam and gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie original podcast, executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, LaShawn McGee, Chris Rodriguez, and Damian Pelliccione. The show is produced by Drew Phillips and sound engineered and edited by Josh Perkins. Download the Reverie app and use the code FILTH for 25% off your first three months.